the first Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. We've read most of this scripture passage already, but let me back up for just a moment to verse 9 where Paul is writing. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is the key passage that I want us to consider today. As we think about the reformers and the restoration of preaching. It's January 1st of 1519. It's cold. But there's a young man. It's his birthday. But on this particular day, he is taking charge of the church. He's the young, newly appointed minister of the great Minster Church in Zurich. Ulrich Zwingli steps up to the pulpit. He then shocks the congregation by announcing that he is dispensing with the traditional lectionary homily which was sort of like a little brief uh, meditation, kind of not really sermon. And the main action was the communion. But on this day, he's dispensing with a traditional lectionary homily. And instead, he is going to preach through the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1. That is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he will continue teaching through Matthew week by week until the end. And following this, he will continue to preach through books of the New Testament. He will preach one book and then he will preach through another book. This laid the groundwork for the reformation of doctrine and practices to follow in Zurich. He introduced the concept of the continuous lectionary. Now the lectionary is, is a set of readings that are assigned for particular Sundays. There's nothing wrong with them. We, we actually use one our own that we make. That is, we have readings that accompany a particular theme that's being pursued. But if you only preach for the ones that are assigned for one year, you only get portions of the scripture. You don't get a lot of the whole story. So I think Zwingli had come to the position that he needed, 
his people to understand the whole story. And so he wanted to preach through the Gospel of Matthew to acquaint them, really, with the Savior. Now, years later, Calvin would follow a similar method of weekly sermons at Geneva going through various books of the Bible. So after Calvin was fired by the city council, and he was gone for about three years, I believe it was, he came back at their invitation, and he took up at the pulpit the exact place he last stopped in the book of the Bible that he was preaching from. And he just continued as if he had never been absent. Now this day, January 1st of 1519, the church, or shall we say Christendom, that is the church in union with the state and all of its political machinery, had fallen upon hard times due to the erosion of biblical teaching and the substitution of multitudes of ceremony, relics, and pilgrimages. This had not happened overnight but it had continued for the last 1,000 years. The principal activity in the church was the priest saying Mass. Now embedded in the Mass was the early structure of Christian worship, which we follow. But they had been added all other kinds of things to it, other sayings and words and actions and multitudes of candles and ceremonies. It made for high drama. It made for the appearance of mystery. So the principal activity of the church was the priest saying mass. But he was saying it in a language the people no longer understood. He spoke it in Latin when they spoke German. Or he spoke it in French. I mean, he spoke it in Latin, but they, they spoke in French. Or in England, they spoke English, but he was speaking in Latin. And the choir. The only music provided was by the choir. And it was also usually in Latin. It's some nice music, by the way. But again, the people could not participate and did not understand what was being said. But it was religious entertainment at its height. All of it spoken in Latin. Now, although their readings are from the Vulgate, that is the Latin translation, appointed for each Sunday at two, everything was spoken in Latin. An unknown tongue. Evidently, the priest had failed to read 1 Corinthians 14. If a talk by the priest was given, it was an aside, and usually it was in the language of the people, but it was usually filled with stories related to the saints, sometimes allegories. It was not an opening up of the text of Scripture. Now, most of the clergy were untrained in the Bible, which was in a language they no longer spoke except in the church. They knew how to read it but they didn't truly understand it. In addition, corruption and immorality was rife. True biblical preaching was virtually non-existent. There were two main reasons for this. 
First was the rise of the authority of the Pope. For the last 1,000 years, after the collapse of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had become more and more powerful throughout Europe. And with that was a decline in the authority of the Scriptures. If you had a living Pope who would tell you what you should do and believe, what need did you have for understanding the Scriptures? A gradual stress over a millennium laid upon the officers of the church. Thus church authority and tradition was exalted over the Scripture. The second reason was the emphasis on the Mass as the chief means of grace. Now the Mass had within it the elements of what we call the Lord's Supper. But with all of its additions of actions and words, dress and incense, so many additions have been added to it that even the gospel that's embedded was difficult to be seen. Rituals were added and the people were told that salvation was tied to the Mass. Here's the irony. Although the Mass was said every day of the year, and the people sometimes came and didn't, they only partook of the bread once a year. They never partook of the wine. So they watched the priests do the actions and say the words. Their only participation was to sometimes say a word or two that had been, they had been trained to say. It could be like an amen, or let it be so. So, the second emphasis is on the Mass is the means of grace. And ritual additions were added, and people were told salvation was tied to the Mass. So the Bible was pushed out, and the altar of the Mass took center stage. It was called an altar because only it was sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Christ. So for these two reasons... The priests did not really need to preach. Why? Because they had the authority of the Pope and the officers of the church and because they had the Mass. That was how salvation came to the people. The activity, the rituals, the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So what need did they have? They were not trained in the art of sermonizing. They were not trained in biblical interpretation. The priests were woefully ignorant of God's word. As a result, God's people were being deprived of the true knowledge of God through his word preached. Now, preaching did occur. In fact, just before Luther's time and Zwingli's, there had been a great revival of preaching. But the preaching was occurring outside of the church. And it was done by the friars. Indeed, there was somewhat of a revival, but the substance was not an explanation of the scriptures. Instead, it was stories, stories that abounded, religious stories, with morals, yes, religious stories, but they were not explanations of the scripture. Often the sermons were meant to entertain, and when the papal indulgences were being offered, 
the sermons were meant to frighten the people and to stir their emotions to increase the offerings for the building of St. Peter's in Rome. But now here's the irony. In the providence of God, the humanist, Erasmus, had produced a Greek New Testament based on the ancient text. He produced this text in Greek, and he said alongside of it in Latin, the Vulgate. The Bible was hot off the press in 1516, and Zwingli purchased one. Let me read to you a little statement. It's from Wikipedia. I imagine it's about as good as any of the rest of them. It says that the title of the first edition, Novum Instrumentum Omne, was a bilingual Latin and Greek New Testament with scholarly annotations by Erasmus. First printed the New Testament Greek to be published. The first edition, 1516. And it sold, I think I read, about 30,000 copies what was over with. There was more than that one edition. The work was relaunched with a new title in a second edition in 1519. This edition was notably used by Martin Luther for his translation of the New Testament into German. And the third edition, 1522, was used by William Tyndall for the first English New Testament in 1526. The Erasmanian editions and the subsequent 16th century revisions thereof fed into the Geneva Bible, into the King James Version of 1611, into the Texas Receptus, which was the basis for the majority of modern translations of the New Testament in the 16th and 19th centuries. <coughs> so this was an extremely influential book and greatly contributed to the production of the Bible in the language of the people, thanks to the Reformers, Luther and Tyndall and others. Now, after securing, a, after securing the Bible, the Greek Bible, Erasmus began a serious study of Greek. He said, this is the, this is the book the language that God inspired, I'm going to learn this language and I'm going to know this language. He's a very smart man. He took seriously the study of Greek and the New Testament. Christian History Magazine relates the following. The feeling of responsibility for his charge, he took very seriously being a priest, even though um, early on he had not yet even been converted himself personally. But his feelings of responsibility for his people motivated Zwingli's increasing interest in the Bible. In an age when priests were often unfamiliar with the scriptures, Zwingli became enamored with it. <coughs> First, after purchasing a copy of Erasmus's New Testament Latin translation, he began teaching himself Greek. He bought a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament and he started memorizing long passages. In 1519, he began preaching from the New Testament regularly, translating it from the Greek. 
It was from these factors that he became convinced that the people needed to know the Bible. Thus arose his conviction to preach the text consecutively beginning with the Gospel of Matthew. The Reformers, beginning with Luther and Zwingli, restored the church to her central task, which is preaching the Word of God. Now, how did the Reformers recover preaching? How did they recover the sermon for the worship of the churches? There are a few factors. First, they recognized and began to teach that the pure teaching of God's Word is a mark of the true church. How do I know what church is true, what church is false? The Augsburg Confession of 1530 states, the church is the place where the Word is purely preached and the sacraments are duly administered. And this statement is found in almost all Reformed confessions, although some add a third mark. The second Helvic in 1566 states, what is the church? And this is the answer. The church and an assembly of the faithful called are gathered out of the world, a communion. I say of all saints, namely of those who truly know and rightly worship and serve the true God in Christ the Savior by the Word and Holy Spirit, and who by faith are partakers of all benefits which are freely offered through Christ. So the church is an assembly, the faithful people. They're gathered out of the world, and they are called together to truly know and rightly worship and serve God through the Savior, Jesus Christ, by His Word, the Scriptures, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, so that by faith they are partakers of what Christ offers us in the gospel. I think that's a very good uh, definition of the signs of the church. On the notes are the signs of the true church, the Helvig Confession, which, by the way, is from the Zurich Church by Bullinger, Zurich um, Zwingli's successor after he was killed in battle. On the signs of the true church, moreover, we acknowledge no other head of the church than Christ. So we do not acknowledge every church to be a true church, which vaunts itself to be such. But we teach that the true church is that in which the signs or the marks of the true church are to be found, which are the lawful and sincere preaching of the Word of God as it was delivered to us in the books of the prophets and the apostles, which all lead us unto Christ, who said in the gospel, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. A stranger they do not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So that's the first. How do they restore the sermon in the worship of the church? Well, they made a sign of a true church. And secondly, the Reformers brought the sermon back into the church assembly as the centerpiece of her regular worship. In the Catholic Church, the centerpiece is the Mass, not the preaching of the Word. But with the Reformers, there was an emphasis upon the preaching 
the sermon became the centerpiece of the worship service. And this was even reflected by rearrangement of the church furniture. The pulpit or the preaching stand was at a higher elevation so that the minister could preach the word, the people could hear it, sound falls. The reformers also introduced a new theology of preaching. The Bible is not only to be read and studied, etc., but it was to be embodied in the life and worship of the church. Thus the sermon is a vital and integral part of corporate worship. And all the elements of worship presuppose and are supported by the lively preaching of the word and woven into the texture of the whole worship event by the dynamic operation of the Holy Spirit. So, in a real way, the preaching event has an utterly objective character. I'm quoting from Timothy George. That transcends the weak and sinful status of the preacher himself. Whenever God's word is proclaimed, the Lord truly speaks and is truly present in judgment and in grace. That is to say, it boldly, an ex opera operato presence of God's word in the preached word. Let me go back and just break that down for you. The preaching event has an objective character about it that transcends, that goes over the weak and sinful status of the preacher. In other words, the power of the word of God as it's read and taught by sinful and weak men still has an objective character, the character of the truth of God concerning himself, especially as he's manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever God's word is proclaimed, God speaks in and through his word. You're not simply hearing the preacher if the preacher is speaking God's word and its truth, it's God himself who is speaking to you and to me. And God himself is present in his preached word, both in judgment and in grace. Now, how is that so? Well, as the word is preached and you receive it, as you hear it and understand it, and the spirit of God works in you, then he brings you to judgment. He may bring you to grace. In other words, God the Holy Spirit operating through His Word ministers to us at our point of need. He speaks to us inwardly, subjectively. There is an objective word being spoken by the minister, but as we are attuned to God and through faith listen to the preached Word, God Himself speaks and works in us. For this reason, God has chosen what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 1, the folly of preaching, the foolishness of preaching, to bring sinful people unto himself. 
Now, this is a very important truth, and I, I want to appoint you to two scriptures. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God is called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, in looking at that verse, how is it that the word of the gospel, the word that saves, came to those who were saved? They didn't all run down to the corner store and buy them a Bible. They didn't have one. It came to them through the preachers. It came to them through those who preached the gospel to them. Read the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there are sermons recorded. Now, those sermons that are recorded are of the nature, they have two aspects. They're evangelistic. That is, they are preached as a summary of Christ's person and work in order to call people to faith in him. And are they are apologetic. They set forth reasons for the faith. For why Christ is who he said he is and did accomplish what they are proclaimed they accomplished. So they preach apologetically and evangelistically. And the purpose of that preaching is primarily to reach people with the gospel so that they believe and are saved. Now they did also many times preach in Jewish synagogues. So these are people who already have a foundation of the faith. And so they're telling them how their scripture has now been fulfilled, how all that was prophesied about Christ is now come to pass. You should therefore repent and turn in faith to him. Now we do not have an example in the book of Acts of preaching to the gathered assembly of believers. Not in the book of Acts. But we do have one example of it in the New Testament. It's in what we call the book of Hebrews. If you'll take the book of Hebrews and read it, number one, it doesn't begin as a letter. It begins as an address. And it follows all the way through to chapter 13 in the last few verses where he turns to a correspondence mode. The book of Hebrews, I don't know if it was one sermon or it was an accumulation of sermons, or sermon summaries, but it is a sermon, a cohesive sermon about who Jesus Christ is, how he is our prophet, our king, and our priest who offered the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, who calls us to live for him in a world that is our enemy because we are a pilgrim church, a pilgrim people on the way to the celestial city. And we will be beset by various enemies, but we must persevere in the faith. We must hold on to our faith. We must resist evil, and we must cling to the Savior. 
That's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's a sermon. I challenge you to just pick it up and read it, maybe in a new or modern translation, read it through. You'll have a sermon. You'll think, wow, he was a long winder. <laughs> the second, Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 15. Why, why am I going over these verses? I want to show you how crucial preaching is. Why it is central in the life of the church. It is the means by which God calls people to judgment, conviction, and the means by which God calls people to salvation. Now salvation is not simply deliverance from hell. Salvation is entrance into a relationship with God. A reconciled relationship with God in which we are growing in our understanding and love of Him. And he is molding us more and more into his character. And the principal means by which he does this is through the preached word. Romans 10. This is about salvation. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all. He richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter your nationality or your language. But here's a question. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? Well, you can't call on him if you don't believe in him. And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard of? If you haven't heard of him, how can you believe in him? And how can you hear without someone preaching to them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Notice, Paul is not talking about someone getting a, a manuscript and reading it. He's talking about someone who is a living person who takes this truth that's in this manuscript and who preaches it to them who opens up what it says, who explains to them who Christ is and how can they preach unless they are sent. So these are people who are called by God and sent to preach Christ. Outside of the church, we call these evangelists. Inside the church, we call them pastors. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen? Amen. So, I want us to come back now to think about preaching. Because I've been using a word that I've not defined. So what is preaching? So let me share some good definitions in my opinion. Hughes Old, who produced a massive work on the history of preaching, which I do not own, by the way, <laughs> defines expository preaching as the following. The systematic explanation of Scripture done on a week-to-week -week basis at the regular meeting 
of the congregation. This is expository preaching. Now, expository preaching can be thematic. That is, it can be topical, at which point you are taking Scripture and you weave together Scriptures that relate to that topic or theme. They may begin with a particular verse or a paragraph and explain it grammatically but they bring in the meaning from other sections of the Word of God. This was the example of the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones and of many of the great preachers of the day. Now this past week, uh, I think Jeff, Jeff read one of Luther's sermons. Luther based his sermons, by the way, on the regular lectionary of the church of his day. And he continued that practice and what was it, about 28 pages or was it 30-something pages of that sermon? So, it was 35 pages. Wow. <laughs> so, but you can have expository preaching that's like you confine yourself to just that one paragraph. I don't think that's a usual pattern. But that is one that's become very popular and is touted so much as being the only true way of preaching, which I do not believe to be true at all. But this expository preaching is a systematic explanation of scriptures on a week-to-week basis at the regular meeting of the congregation. Timothy Keller in preaching. Here's one, Bernard Manning, which I really think has a lot to do with it. This is what he defines preaching as. A manifestation of the incarnate word from the written word by the spoken word. Now I believe this to be a true definition of Christian preaching. I believe it it doesn't capture all the things we might want to say technically about preaching, but it captures the heart of what preaching is. Preaching is a declaration of the word of God written. But what is the word of God written? Well, it's the testimony to God and to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, on the prophets, to whom God spoke, sometime in visions, audibly, in different ways, they record the revelation. In the New Testament, it's based on the eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ himself in his death, burial, and resurrection, his ministry. To be an apostle, you had to have been with Christ from the time he was baptized in the Jordan River until he ascended into heaven. So you had to actually witness him. It is the apostles, and even Paul, who was an exceptional apostle, had a personal manifestation of the real Christ before him. So it's based on eyewitness testimony. That's the basis of the New Testament. That's the written word that connects us with the objective incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived more than 2,000 years ago in the land we now call Israel, Jordan, and a little bit of Lebanon or maybe Syria. He lived in that area more than 2,000 years ago. But he lived in history... And he's alive today in his body in heaven, 
But he didn't live over there in the land. He's in heaven. Now, that objective event that happened then is communicating to us by the written word. The written word is inspired by the Holy Spirit who moves in the minds of the authors to write just the words he wants them to write. So the incarnate word that's objective to us, the testimony is in the written word. And by the way, the written word is also what? Objective to us. But we receive the written word principally in the church by means of the preached word. The read word in the church and the preached word is the principal way in which we receive the written word. You have to understand that for, for most of the span of the Christian church, people have not been able to have Bibles in their homes. We've been greatly blessed since the time of the Reformation, but even then, most of the people did not have all these individual copies of the books in their home. That's something that's now relatively common in the current time, and maybe for the last hundred years it could be so. But that was not true historically. So the principal means of how people receive the Word of God then and even now is through the preached Word in the gathered assembly on the day of the week, be it Sunday or Saturday, in which the church meets. Therefore, the preached Word in the congregation is also the chief means of discipleship that occurs in the church. This is why it is very important that we proclaim the Word, not just portions, but that we proclaim the whole breadth of the Word of God and that we read it, not simply talk about it, but actually read the old and the new and we bring it together. So I believe this is important that we understand the nature then of what preaching is. And on the basis of that, we can come to understand how very important was the work of the Reformers in restoring the sermon to being a chief, the chief activity in the gathered assembly. Now, all parts of a gathered assembly are important. And they all should blend and work together to bring us into the presence of God. So the Word of God, as God, as the Bible uses it, is threefold. The Word of God, the Logos, is Jesus the Christ, the incarnate Word. He is the incarnate God, who is also a human person. But the Word of God comes to us in the written form of what we call the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. This is the written word of God. And the New Testament specifically is bearing testimony and witness to Jesus Christ himself. But the word of God comes to us also as the spoken word. The spoken word. And as we prayed in the prayer that we sang just before I came, we pray that the Holy Spirit 
would put his anointing upon the person's lips who speaks so that we, the Spirit working in our lives, being receptive through faith, would hear God's message to us as it's preached. The preacher's role is not simply to give you information or to teach you a Bible lesson. That is not the preacher's role in the sermon. The preacher's role is to bring you into the presence of God by means of His Word, spoken under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Communication in this way requires a work, a double work. One in the preacher and two in the listener. The preacher may be very faithful, but if we're not listening and we do not listen with the right attitude of mind, then God's Word will bear no fruit in us. It will fall on hard ground. So it's important when we come to the services of the church, when we come to hear the Word of God read and preached, that we ask God to give us the right frame of mind and heart to be receptive and obedient to what God shows us in the Word. We're not actually dependent on the preacher having to say, well, we can have this application and that application and this application. As the Word is preached, the Spirit Himself may apply it directly to you. You may hear Him speak about some sin and you can understand that God's dealing with you about that sin. You can hear one speaking about some great event or some great activity that God has done in history or God is doing in the lives of people and you can cry out with your heart saying, God, bless me that way. Do that in my life. Prayer is not simply when we say, let's bow our heads and pray. It occurs transactionally within your mind if as you hear God's Word spoken, you dialogue with Him. That's prayer. We were asking God in that hymn to anoint the preacher's lips and also to make our hearts and minds receptive. So the Word of God is spoken through the minister of God, the person of God, who's been called to the task and who's been equipped with the gift of teaching God's Word. This is how God communicates to us. He communicates the incarnate Word to us by means of the written Word through the spoken Word. This is communication from heaven that brings with it the great tidings of salvation and brings with it that which we need to nourish our souls and to transform our minds. And this, Paul says in Romans 12, is our reasonable service of worship. May God grant that as the word of God is spoken and as we hear it, that we will receive it for what it is. Like the Thessalonians, 
the Word of God. Because our life and our growth depends upon it. Amen.